Well, there is uh, something powerful um, about simplicity. Uh, Less is often best. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci, not DiCaprio, uh, da Vinci said, uh, simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. Einstein said, everything should be made as simple as possible, but not simpler. I love that. Uh, Hans Hoffman said, to uh, simplify means to eliminate the unnecessary so that the necessary may speak. I'll admit I'm always not the best at simplicity and less is best when it comes to preaching um, in time, but uh, today I'm going to uh, go for a little bit more uh, sophisticated simplicity uh, to try and let the necessary speak. Um, So here's what we're going to do. Ben, uh, one of our interns here for this summer for June and July, is going to read with us uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 16. So if you have your Bible, open that. He's going to lead us in reading, and then uh, I'm going to attempt to take 30 minutes and uh, take us through the text for our day and kind of have an assignment for you after that. So, Ben, would you lead us in reading God's Word? Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love, in steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and the Holy Spirit, with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And not only has the word of God sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols, to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring forth from error or an impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with the pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as the apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, that we were ready to share not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had already become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that you might not be a burden to any of, that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, 
which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you know, brothers, for you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, and you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure from their sins, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. And so, Lord, we dive into your word, and we're excited about it, um, and thank you for it. You have spoken, and I would ask, would you help us to understand increasingly so what you have spoken, and that we would do what you have spoken. In Christ's name, amen. Well, simply stated, First um, Thessalonians chapter 1 is really about what Paul, Silas, and Timothy knew about the church in Thessalonica, and then stated for chapter 2 is really about what the church in Thessalonica, Team Thessalonica, knew about Paul, Silas, and Timothy in that. And um, you walk away from both of these chapters, it's kind of like a, wow, Paul, Silas, and Timothy really loved these people. And chapter 2, these people really loved Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And that is so cool, and I say that is especially so cool because, friends, we live in a very angry world right now. And uh, these are people that truly loved and enjoyed and were blessed by each other. And in fact, I would suggest that is one of the greatest reasons why the church in Thessalonica was a church that was on the move. Uh, because of the relationships that they had. I'll just say it this way. It was not just about gospel data. It was about gospel together. It was not just about getting more gospel data. It was about actually living gospel together was the core of how I would say what was going on. It's like there's this coach-player relationship that just speaks volumes about what's taking place. By the way, and I don't know if in high school, maybe uh, you were in sports, Uh, Maybe you were on the uh, um, band or choir or science team or debate team or chess team or whatever it is. Uh, You know even to this day what your coaches were like, right? You know even to this day what that relationship was like with your coaches. For me, I still vividly remember my seventh grade coach, uh, Mr. Book. Uh, He was just the coolest guy, I mean, getting started in sports in seventh grade, and he was just the kind of guy that you walked away thinking, you know what, he wants to win, but he wants us to grow as young men, and uh, loved that. Uh, My ninth grade football coach, Coach Kedzer, really the uh, kind of the fire that got me uh, more increasingly interested in football. Uh, Why? Because he knew how to get in your face and love you at the same time. And most football coaches don't know how to do that. They just know how to get in your face. And a lot of times I'm like, in my face like that, forget you. Um, I had a great attitude at times. (laughs) I think of my college soccer coach, uh, Coach Metema, Um, He was only probably about four or five years older than actually all the rest of us on the team. And yet, he was the kind of guy who was right there with you. When you played, he was playing. And uh, it was just a really cool thing. They were my best coaches, I would say this, because they knew me, 
and because I actually felt like I knew them. I knew what they wanted from me, and they knew that I cared about them and cherished the time with them. And that's kind of what was going on here. It's like chapter one, we know you, and chapter two, you know us in that. What did they know? Well, just a kind of a bit of a review here. Uh, chapter two, verse one, uh, they knew that Paul's, Silas, and Timothy's ministry with them was not in vain. It was not empty. Uh, what was that based upon? Well, I talked about kind of what I called five marks of ministry measurement on that. It's mission on game, message on game, motive on game, methods on game, mandate on game, approved and trusted by God. We talked about those and more of that in us. Uh, so those are, so what are some marks of a church that's on game? I would suggest those out of First Thessalonians chapter two, verses one through four. By the way, I'm just gonna let you know here over the coming months as pastors and elders, we're gonna be doing a whole ministry uh, review of our measuring our ministries and how we're doing and and building that to be able to plan for future planning. And I promise you, uh, these five are going to be top on the list as we go about assessing and taking a look at how we're doing with those. So if those are uh, five uh, ministry marks, what are the key ingredients? Because marks help with measuring things, but the ingredients comprise the reality of it. Uh, measurements help, marks help to measure things, but ingredients actually comprise what you're talking about. And so last Sunday, we talked about three ingredients for ministry on game out of 1 Thessalonians 2, 8, New International Version, which I had memorized. Uh, We loved you so much, we're delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Three things. First one, a love for people, a love for people. We loved you so much that we were delighted to. And then the end of the verse, because you had become so dear to us. <clears throat> Second thing is share your life. Share your life. Uh, we loved you so much that we're delighted to share with you our life. Third thing, share the gospel. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you the gospel of God. Those are the three ingredients. By the way, not one, not two of them, all three. All three are critically important. So, Pastor Doug, that helps, uh, but what I could use a little bit more description, I could use a little bit more clarification. What does it look like to do those three ministry ingredients? And that's a good question. So, let's go there in kind of a less is best fashion. Uh, let's begin with the first one first ministry ingredient, a love for people. Simply stated, I just have three comments on this. Number one, I've already stated it. Chapter 1 and 2, scream love for each other. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and 2, for me personally, I think are some of the most foundational chapters in all of Scripture on what ministry should look like, on a philosophy of ministry. And it just screams through this a love for people. A second thing I'll note here is in two Sundays, we're going to be getting that last paragraph of uh, chapter 2, verses 17 through 20. (laughs) Think of it. It is the exclamation point on the sentence of chapters 1 and 2. In fact, uh, look at verse 20. Uh, Paul, Silas, and Timothy say, For you are our glory and joy. (laughs) Boom! Exclamation point. By the way, what is your glory? What is your joy? For Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they're looking and they're looking back and they're thinking of the people that they had ministered to in this place in Thessalonica that they had shared their lives or shared the gospel with. They're like, you know, of all the things there are, you are our glory and joy. 
Oh, exclamation point two Sundays from now. Uh, lastly, I'll just note on the love for people. Back when we were doing the Ready Together Go series, back in March, I'd taken us to 1 Corinthians 12 and then 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 12, a uh, unified plurality. 1 Corinthians 13, love is more than a group hug. And I would encourage you to go back and look at your notes, go back and consider that text. You can listen to the sermons again online, but those are building this whole idea of a love for people. Hey, friends. I'm going to ask the hard question I asked last Sunday again here before we leave this first one. And the question is this. Do you love people? And by the way, don't answer that too quickly. I mean, seriously, do you love people biblically? In other words, loving them in the kind of a way, engaging with them in the kind of a way for where it's for their benefit or for yours. I'm telling you, we, I, have to watch ourselves because I think we oftentimes think that we are loving people when actually we are using people. We are working people for our own desires, for our own self-interest, for our own goals, for our own objectives. Kind of under the guise of loving them, but actually they're our own little servants in our own little kingdom of which we are the kings and queens of. I just want to ask us to reconsider, check our hearts. Psalm 139, 23, and 24. David says, Lord, check my heart. Show me if there's anything to change in me, and I'm willing to change. And I think this is one of them. Seriously, friends, loved ones. Do you love people like Jesus loved people? More of that in us, right? More of that in us. It's a battle every day. Well, simple is powerful. Less is often best, so I leave ingredient number one there. Hey, I'm on track, you guys. Next ministry ingredient, share your life. A little bit more on this. Uh, Sharing your life, sharing our lives, chapter two includes three attributes. The first we actually picked up last Sunday uh, out of verse seven, gentleness. Gentleness. Let me read verse seven, chapter two. But we were gentle among you. How? Like what? Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. (laughs) Here's these manly men. And trust me, these are manly men doing what they're doing. And they're relating what they did to how it was like a nursing mom. I talked about that last Sunday and just making the imagery of that. A nursing mom. And what's going on there? As a guy, I don't fully get it, but I've watched it happen. I told you about how I would watch Karen nursing her children. And and she would just look, and there's just like a look and a love and a thing going on there that is just like crazy awesome. And she would just take her finger and stroke their cheek over and over and over again. And there's a love that is taking place there that is so gentle, that is so deep, that is so life-giving. It's literally skin to skin, not distance. It's whatever is best for you. Not abrasive, not neglectful, but gentle. Not abrasive, not neglectful, but gentle. And a person and a people on the move for Jesus has the trait of gentleness, caring for one another and others like a nursing mother for her children. Do you have a short fuse? It's time to change it. If you have a short fuse with people, it's time to increase the length of the fuse. Gentleness is to be the trait. 
of a ministry and of God's people, gentleness. What's the first one? Gentleness. Yep, sharing your life and looks like gentleness. Sharing your life, secondly, also includes what I'm calling industriousness. Industriousness. If we look at verse 9. For you remember, this is telling how, uh, again, this idea in chapter 2 that they're saying, you know, beginning of chapter 2, for you yourselves know, and now here you remember, it's what they know about Paul, Silas, and Timothy. For you know, brothers, you know, sisters, our labor and our toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Well, I could go on this one for a long time, but stay on the necessary, right? Tell me, yes? Okay. I need your help. Um, okay, so here's what's going on. Paul, Silas, and Timothy are on, their, are on their second missionary journey. Which missionary journey? That means they've already had one, and this is the second one. The first one didn't go out this far. I'm not going to go through the maps on it. You can look in the back of your Bible. The first one was actually much closer to Jerusalem, the, Mediter- the, 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 uh, the, the west side of the Mediterranean Sea, and with what's going on. Now, this one's going further out in the second missionary journey. And on the second missionary journey, uh, they're going out into Gentile territory. I mean, major Gentile territory at the time. They don't have the background of the Jewish uh, kind of area right around the west side of the Mediterranean. And, and so they're in Gentile territory out there, and they're also in territory where religious con, arse, con artistry and religious using and abusing people was the norm. Now, we talked about that the other week. Uh, and here's the thing. They knew that, and they did not want even a hint of that in their ministry. They did not want to have a hint of any kind of idea that they are using and abusing people. And friends, the ministry of the gospel is not about the human ministers ministering the gospel. Let me say that again. The ministry of the gospel is not about the human ministers of the gospel. And by the way, let me be very clear so we all understand when I'm using that terminology, all of life is ministry. So we're not talking about the position of minister, we're talking about the life of doing ministry. And in the doing of ministry, gospel, it is not about you, it is not about me, it is about the gospel, and so we need to do everything we can to make sure that it's about on center. It's about the good news of Jesus Christ. It's not about me, it's not about you, it's not about this, it's about this, right? That's what's important in this. And so what do they do? they make sure that they are not getting the gospel message off track onto them. Listen, straight up with you. Even today, there's a ministry cancer epidemic called It's About Me. There's a ministry cancer epidemic about me. It's, it's about make it about me. It's I want to do what I want to do. It's I want to do what I prefer to do. I want to do what I'm best at with ministry. Uh, that's not my spiritual gift. It's just a ministry cancer. I can't tell you how many times in working with uh, senior pastors, especially young senior pastors, they, 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 they just want to preach the word. Oh, that would be awesome. But there's like a whole lot of other things that need to be done. And it's the same for uh, not just vocational people, for non-vocational people. I just want to do what I like. I just want to do what's best. Wait, wait. I just want to say so sorry about this, but it's so not about you. It's so not about me that it's about doing what's needed to be done and doing it together in a joyful kind of way. That's where it actually really gets fun. 
And think about it here. After Paul, Silas, and Timothy have had to live in life pummeled out of them in Philippi, which is right before they came to Thessalonica, right before that, they get the life pummeled out of them. They come into Thessalonica. I would think that's the time to kind of have a vacay, right? Time to have a vacation. And yet when they come in, what's going on? They're not taking a vacation. They're literally working night and day. And by the way, that's not ministry work night and day. It's functional handwork night and day. Oftentimes in that day, a typical job went from sunrise to sunset. And that's what's talking about here. By the way, where do we get our five days, 40-hour work week from? Ah, different subject. Stay on track. So they live as tent makers. Why? Not because they preferred to, but because they were in a territory where if they didn't, there's the potential that people would get off gospel and on them. And they didn't want to have that happen. They worked hard. They worked hard. And I'll just say it. I wish it was a different reality, but doing loving people, sharing your life ministry is hard work. Doing loving people, sharing your life ministry, humanly speaking, unfortunately, is really hard, laborious, toiling work. Just ask Jesus. Just ask Jesus. Friends, from a pastoral position, why these chapters are so critical to me because there's so much about church philosophy, structure, and and how to do ministry in these chapters here. I'm just going to add, churches have gone to teaching, teaching, teaching ministry at times. Thinking that's what's needed. More data, more data, more data. I remember when we go to church uh, back in the day, not too long ago. You'd go to church on Sunday morning, go to Sunday school. You'd go to worship service. You'd get taught in Sunday school. Go to the worship service, get taught there. You'd go Sunday evening, get taught there. You'd come Wednesday night and get taught there. And part of the question was, is how are our people doing living out? I'm just going to tell you straight up, there's too much teaching and there needs to be more action. And the fact of the matter is teaching, teaching, teaching ministry is easy in comparison to loving others, sharing your life ministry. Program, program, program ministry. It's easier. Busy, busy, busy ministry. It's easier. Social issue, social issue, social issue. Say that three times. It's easier to do that than it is to do this. It's easier to do those things than it is to share your life by truly loving on your friends, on your family, on your coworkers, on your schoolmates, on your siblings, on your spouse, on your neighbors, on your faith family. It's hard work. And it requires a spiritual work ethic, an importance of it. It's not a skill set thing, it's not a personality thing. 
And it's not centered around what you prefer to do because it wasn't for Paul, Silas, and Timothy. It was centered around what was best for those to whom you were loving and sharing your life with. I will order my life around that rather than me. If I could say it this way, I would say it's more being like Jesus. It's more being like Jesus. So I'm going to ask with this one. Do you have a strong work ethic spiritually? Do you have a strong relationships work ethic? And by the way, I'm not talking about the person next to you. I'm talking to you. Because this is the difference. This is the thing that matters. Loving others and sharing your life with them. Sharing your life biblically includes the attribute of gentleness, not abrasiveness, not neglectfulness, but gentleness. Sharing your life with others also includes the attribute of industriousness, not laziness, not burdensomeness, but industriousness. And third with this, sharing your life, I'm calling it honorableness, honorableness. By the way, verses 10 through 12 are all one sentence in the original language. One sentence means it's an ongoing, continual thought. Let me read just verse 10, though. We'll work our way. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Well, those guys are arrogant. (laughs) I don't think any of us would probably use the terminology, you know what, you know how holy I was before you. Um, it's okay to laugh at that. <laughs> it really is. Because here's the deal in it. We just don't talk like that. So, so what's, what's going on here? What he's talking about here are three traits that's going on. He's just being straight up about the reality of it. Hey, you know our conduct. You know what our conduct was around you. He's already put out gentleness. He's already put out their industriousness. And why was it that they were tent makers during this time? He wasn't, they weren't tent makers everywhere that they went, by the way. During this time, even Philippi was giving them some funds to help them. And Acts talks about that. But obviously, it wasn't enough. And they're doing tent making, which, by the way, in that day was hard, hard work. And so here, honorableness, they're saying in all of this, our conduct was holy. It means to be devout. It means set apart. Our conduct was set apart from like everyone else you saw. All the other small businesses in Thessalonica that you saw business owners doing business like they were doing, you know that we weren't doing business like they were doing. We weren't doing money under the table. We weren't cutting deals that were unethical. We weren't working the system. You know that we were devoutly uh, set apart as businessmen and as men with where we were at. Secondly, our conduct was upright. That's referring to we were upright in seeking to obey God's laws and man's laws. He's not saying they're perfect. No way is he saying that. But you're saying on the whole of it, you know that our desire and our purpose and our effort was to be upright before you. And then third, it says our conduct was blameless. By the way, that blameless, the term that's being used is blameless with other people. You know that where we were, that we were blameless before other people in how we conducted ourselves with business, how we conducted ourselves with ministry, not characterlessness, not hypocriticalness, but it was honorableness. They worked at it. And then verse 11, because their honorableness was like someone 
You are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you, for you know how like a father with his children. Isn't that interesting? Last Sunday we had the, the mother, nursing mother part of that. Now we have a father part of it. Oh, I could just talk a whole bunch of things about fathers in that day. Uh, we'll get uh, more on that uh, maybe next Sunday with it being Father's Day with some of that. Uh, but today less is best, so I'm trying to hang there. The family unit in that day, in the family unit in that day, the father was known to be the one responsible for the moral and character formation of their children. I just want to say that again because I think we've lost some of that. Back in that day, it was known that the father, first and foremost, was to have the moral and character formation responsibility for the children besides teaching them a trade because back in that day they didn't have school like they were with dad all the time and and they were building in that and so it was known that they weren't just doing trade but they were developing the character and, and their understanding of God I mean it's just so cool yet it was also sad in that day fathers were known the typical father in that day was known as harsh and hard really harsh and hard And can you imagine now when they talk about this, where they're giving the contrast, your witnesses, how we were not harsh and hard. We were gentle like a nursing mother. Wow, the cultural change that was was dramatic. But not only that, but we were men who were devout in our set-apartness and walking with the Lord. We were upright before others. We were blameless in our reputation. So this is a certain kind of father. This is a father like that, not just any kind of father. By the way, it's not like any kind of mother. It's like a nursing mother. And here it's the same idea. It's like a character honorable father. I don't know, maybe you didn't have a very honorable father. And when you picture a father that's not honorable, that's a hard thing for you to picture. But at the same time, I might use that and go, can you imagine if you had an honorable father of great character? What an impact that would be for you, right? Sharing your life with gentleness, sharing your life with industriousness, sharing your life with an honorableness, hear me on this, positions you to share the gospel. Let me say this again. I think when you work through what's taking place, and I ask, how did Paul, Silas, and Timothy do ministry? How did they start a church and build that church? What was their philosophy of ministry, their approach to ministry, and the function of how did they make it happen? I, I go, I've been through this, these two chapters probably a thousand times, and in it I keep coming back to this, that the core thing of how they built a church was they clearly loved people. I mean, they loved people not for their own self-resume. They loved people because Jesus loved people. And they wanted to love people like Jesus loved people. And not only did they just have a love for people, they went just like Jesus did. They shared their very lives with those people. And they shared their lives not in an arrogant, I'm an apostle, so I want to come down or talk down to you. But they were talking with people with gentleness like a nursing mother. Working hard at it. Because it takes work and it takes effort to do that. 
and doing it with a character that follows behind them. I would submit that that kind of man, that kind of woman, that kind of teenager is someone who is positioned that people will want to hear from you. Because we, especially like there, live in a culture where people are using people and you know it. And people are not sharing their lives. They're keeping as far distant as they can from you. And here's the exact opposite. And it's a call for me, and it's a call for all of us. What should our ministry look like? Right now at this stage, it should look like about a thousand people who love people sincerely and deeply and want to increasingly do it that way like Jesus. And a thousand people that are engaged in the sharing of their lives together because they know that is important. And sharing their lives together in gentleness, in hard work out of it, and in the reality of an honorable character. Not perfect people. None of us in this room are perfect. But can you imagine a church like that? And out of that, those people are positioned to share the gospel. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm just gonna read through the text from verse nine through verse 16. And I want to have it just, I'm gonna read it, make a couple comments as I'm reading it, but I want it to show to where, watch this, when they are doing what they are doing, it is in the mix of the loving people sharing their lives that the gospel is what is being proclaimed. The context of sharing the gospel is a person and a people that love other people and are sharing their lives with those people. Watch, let me actually begin in verse seven. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God but our own selves because you had become so dear to us. For you remember, brothers, you remember, sisters, our labor and our toil. We worked a night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Do you see that? In the toiling and the laboring of life, of not even being a burden, that even that was not separated from them. That actually was the ministry forum to do ministry. It was in the toiling and the laboring. They aren't separate entities. They are together entities. It is in the laboring of life that the laboring of the gospel can be made. Verse 10, 10 through 12 is one sentence. And you are witnesses, and God also, how holy, how set apart, and how righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted you, encouraged you, and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his, one, his own kingdom and glory. You see, he's talking about how it's in this, in this honorable characterness, like a father with his children. That should be a great, loving relationship. And by the way, note three things that are happening here. There's exhorting, 
Exhorting, the word means to call alongside. The word can mean uh, to be one who comes alongside. It's the father who comes along his children to aid them, to direct them, to instruct them. It's a coming alongside thing. And so he's talking about you, you are witnesses of out of our character, we wanted to come alongside you. We wanted to be a part of you. And then the word encouraging, that's to comfort and to give consolation towards growth. It's encouraging. That's it, that's it, that's it, that's it. You need a cheerleader in life, don't you? Oh, by the way, there's also the charging part of it. That means the times of imploring. It's actually kind of a, a strong word. It's calling some things out. It's giving warnings at times. I go back to my coaches in, in school. The best coaches were the coaches that I looked at and I literally thought you loved me, not just what I might bring to the team. You loved me, and in that, we did life together. I mean, all the practices, all the time you spent together, rubbing shoulders, thinking, working together in it, he, they were always further down the road than I was, even though at times I thought I was. <laughs> yeah, that's, Okay. And yet we were there sharing our lives together. Sharing our lives. And I remember the times the best coaches had this ability to be both gentle and to push you, right? To be able to know when the times come. It's like, Doug, just come on over. Let me just give you a hug, man. Because that was really bad. (laughs) Let me just give you a hug. And I'm like, you know what? That's what I needed right now. Because I knew exactly what I did wrong. I just needed to have the encouragement. And other times it's like, kind of like, come on, Doug, come on, Doug, come on, Doug. All of that, that's the perfect mix. I'm telling you, when people are like that, those are the kind of people you want to be around, and those are the kind of people you will listen to. And it's in that mix of it that they are exhorting, that they are encouraging, and that they are charging. Verse 13, let's keep on moving through, because watch the result of all of this, friends. Watch this. And we also thank God constantly for you, for this, that when you received the word of God, you see, because out of love, out of sharing your life, and sharing the gospel, there will be people who will receive the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God, which is at work in you. Not only did they receive it, not only did they accept it, but it's at work in them. Verse 14, for you brothers, you sisters, you became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. By the way, chapter one, they said you are imitators, others are becoming imitators of you. Now he's making the observation that you are imitators of people in Judea, don't have time, but they likely didn't even know about the church in Judea. And Paul, Silas, and Timothy are encouraging them by actually telling them, listen, as I think about you and remember what's happened, you guys are so on the move that you're reminding me of a church way out there that you don't even know about who is on the move as well. You're not alone in this. And then the last part, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Oh, I so get irritated when I hear that the possibility of those final verses, are they saying that Paul, Silas, and Timothy are anti-Semites? Oh, no. No. 
Not at all. They're telling people who live thousands of miles away what actually just took place a period of time decades ago. And they're letting them know what happened in the kind of way where Paul, Silas, and Timothy just came out of having the living life pummeled out of them. And I just don't have the guts in me or the energy in me to go into it more. I want to tell you this. That is not talking about any kind of anti-Semitism. Out of a genuine, for your good love for people, the gospel is shared. Out of a like a nursing mother gentleness, the gospel is shared. Out of a toiling and laboring industriousness, the gospel is shared. Out of an honorableness like an honorable father, the gospel is shared. Friends, loved ones, this is what ministry should look like. And I am burdened, and honestly, I am bothered by what has happened to God's people and the churches. They have gotten cluttered with all kinds of things, all kinds of activities, all kinds of hobby horses, because they're easier than doing this. And just imagine, just imagine if God's people, from a place of truly loving people, were actively engaged in sharing their lives with other people, out of that, the gospel being shared out of that, I am telling you, we would turn the world upside down. More of this, more of this, more of this in us. And so, Lord, I didn't hit my 30 minutes. <laughs> but your word is um, timeless. And what Paul, Silas, and Timothy were doing, Lord, is what Jesus was doing. It's simply that simple. Lord, you know us really well. You know that we really do a good job at complicating what is simple. And preferring to do what is easier than what is best. And God, I pray that you would help us to learn and to grow and kind of swim against the waters of activity, activity, and program, program, and busy, busy, and all these kinds of things, that nothing is wrong with them, but far too often get in the way of us understanding and seeing the simplicity that all of us together can do this. We don't have to have a degree for this. We just need to know Jesus. And it's in the knowing of Jesus we know how he loved people dearly for God so loved the world that he gave. And how our God, the second person of the Trinity, not from a distance, not from afar, but came and lived with and lived among, sharing and pouring out his life. Loving and sharing his life and obviously sharing the good news of himself. That's it, that's it. 
And Lord, there's so much hope in that. There's so much encouragement in that. The simplicity of it is a beautiful thing. So, oh God, I pray as a church family that we would be more of this. All of us in this. Together. Loving one another. Loving others. Sharing our lives with one another in increasing ways and with others outside of our walls. And sharing the gospel, the word of God with each other and with those outside. And God from there, with, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we change the world. So I pray for that. More of that in us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.